You are listening to the Everything You Want to Know About Therapy But We're Too Afraid to Ask podcast with your hosts, Jennifer Trevelli and co-host Jessica Strang. If you ever wanted to start therapy but didn't know where to begin, you've come to the right place. In this podcast, we will offer a Therapy 101 by interviewing experts in the field and asking them anything and everything you wanted to know about therapy before you make your first appointment. Dr. Christina Bailey is a licensed clinical psychologist in Illinois. She has been in the field of psychology for the past 15 years. Today, she brings us her expertise in psychological testing and working with students in therapeutic day schools. We are so pleased to have her on today's episode. Hello and welcome back to our podcast. Today, Jessica and I would like to welcome Dr. Christina Bailey to our show. Hey, Christina. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Hello. Hi. So we have um, Dr. Christina Bailey on our show today and Jessica and I met Christina several years ago. We won't go okay, into how many years ago. We're not going to go into how many years <laughs> because that will age us. Years ago. I, I'm going to say maybe over a decade. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I can, right. I can count it by the age of my kids. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I think that's right. I think that we may have um, all, you know, been having children or whatnot at the time. And it's been mm-hmm. a long time, but since that time um, that we've last met, we've kind of kept in touch and the psychology world, especially in Chicago, is such a small community. Um, so we're so happy that you're here with us. Um, we know a lot of your background, Christina. I love, before we start, do you prefer Christina, Dr. Bailey? What is what is a preference? Uh, Christina is fine. I think in the professional setting that I'm in, I'm usually referred to as Dr. Bailey. But as you should uh, be, yeah. as you should be, as you should be. Well, because we we do know you, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead with Christina, and um, everyone else in the world do never never call her <laughs> Christina. Unless you're your friend, because she earned that title. But but you know, is before we get into how you earned that title, what got you into the field of psychology? What made you even start uh, having an inkling like this is an interesting area to study? Yeah. I think, um, I think when I was even a young kid, I, before I even knew that it was a word or that it was a career or something you could do, I just was always a really curious kid and introspective and overanalyzed things and conversations (laughs) with people and myself. (laughs) And, um, then as I got into school and I realized, oh, this is, this is a thing that people do. Um, I got really interested in pursuing it. And then I had in high school, some personal experiences where there were some losses of some classmates. And that Mm -hmm. really, that led me to my own therapy at the time, which was very helpful for me. And so that combined with um, then taking some introductory classes in high school, it all kind of combined together to then get me to that point where I really saw it for myself as something to do with my future. And I'd always liked working with kids. I, you know, babysat and was a camp counselor. And so all those things kind of came together for me and I pursued it as my major in college. But when I finished school, I did not go right into grad school as a lot of people do. I actually got, uh, went into the corporate setting and worked there for several years. Really? Um, I didn't know this. Did you know this, Jen? I feel like now that you've mentioned it, I feel like I remember it, 
but I did not remember it until you just brought it back up. Yeah, I was doing, um, I worked in consulting and uh, I think I'd been doing that a few years and you kind of, I don't know if I had some kind of like crisis, soul searching kind of (laughs) moment where I thought, is this what I want to be doing for the rest of my life? And I I liked it and I liked where I was at and who I was working with, but I didn't really see it as something I was really passionate about or really excited about. So I kind of went back to what I, you know, did really like and Mm -hmm. did really love and decided to go back to school. So I was, I think I was even in, I was even working while I was on, when I was with you guys at uh, the therapeutic school. How did you have time? Wait a second. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Now as an adult, probably didn't take up all the time, but in that time in my life, I felt like it took up every minute of my day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I know now we're like, what did we do with all that time we had back I know. then? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe you did all that. I mean, so how did, at that time, how did you juggle? Because there are graduate students that do listen to this mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah. How did you juggle that? Because that's a lot to be juggling. Yeah. I, um, I worked full time at my like corporate job until I had to start going on uh, practicum. Yeah. And then I switched okay. to part-time status and they were actually, my, my job was, they were very supportive. They even like paid for some of my classes cause they thought that it would be helpful in my like project and client work with people. Oh. Um, but then when I had to reduce my hours so that I could start doing my training, my clinical hours, they were again, really supportive and just uh, kind of let me do things as I, you know, let me go in as I needed to. And I worked downtown. So it was all, I, you know, I was all within this like small sphere of geography of where I needed to go. But once I went on internship um, and I took night classes, I didn't, I did a lot of evening classes. So that was really helpful to be at a school where they, they offered that rather than know that mm-hmm. I, you know, I would have to go during the day or that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, but then when I went on internship, I reduced my hours and just kind of did almost like contract work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But then when I left internship at, at uh, the therapeutic school, um, I kind of took almost a year off because while I was on internship, <laughs> I was pregnant um, uh, with twins and then I wanted to be home with them and they were pretty premature. So mm-hmm. uh, I decided to try to be as home as much as I could. And I, I kind of resumed my hours of my old job to kind of have some income and insurance and everything and all that, you know, practical grown up stuff. But yeah, <laughs> then I didn't. Yeah. So then I, I kind of took a gap year in between my internship and postdoc, which worked out fine. But you know, it's always nerve wracking when you think, Oh, mm-hmm. gosh, am I gonna get a job now? Am I gonna, <laughs> I went to school for all this time? Am I gonna be able to support myself? So it worked out well, though. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's great because as Jessica said, we do have a lot of graduate students Mm -hmm. who listen to our podcast, as well as people who are interested in the field. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for some, it's not feasible for them to go to school full time, do their practicums full time and devote all of their time because they need to work. They need to earn a living. So it's, it's a good to hear an experience where you are able to still balance both of those during your graduate yeah. school time. Yeah. And, so twins. Cool. and twins yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> and twins. Right. Because the pregnancy is not just like the twins are born and then you're like, okay, now I'm busy. It's like, you know, you're right. like probably exhausted the entire time for nine months. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it took a little longer. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to kind of just jump in and, and, you know, knock it out in five years or whatever it takes if you're full, a full-time student. Mm-hmm. So it took a little bit longer, but um, not 
so much. Like it, I don't know, it just kind of worked out okay. And I, at the time I was, I didn't have kids yet. So I was able to dedicate any free time I had to school and I was younger. So yeah. the energy <laughs> <More> level energy. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's what. Yeah, that definitely the energy level is 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 at an all time low right now. I don't know. Yeah. If it's Omicron has got me. I don't have it, but like I'm, I feel like it's it's just knocking at my door, and I feel like I'm just gonna stay in and hibernate for a while. But um, yeah. so after you 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 took your gap year, um, what did you start doing for work? Um, what was those What were those experiences like for you? So when I did, um, I. During my clinical experiences for practicum, I was in a bunch of different settings. I was in kind of a, a hospital setting where it was um, kind of a lot of group work uh, and some individuals. And then I was in another hospital setting where it was pretty intense. Um, I'd also been at a forensic um, setting in a state hospital because wow. I initially yeah. thought I was going to do forensic as my minor and kind of pursue that route. And so I, um, but then I'd also started working in the school setting and I, I didn't know, I kind of didn't know, okay, what should I do as far as mm-hmm. which, which path am I going to take? You know, am I going to go the forensic route? Am I going to go the child and adolescent route and the school setting type of situation? And I, I just kind of not flipped a coin, but in a way I kind of just, you know, did that like intuitive thinking and kind of went with my gut as far as what I felt was going to be fulfilling for me long-term and Mm -hmm. um, stayed with the school setting. Um, So that's what I did for my postdoc as well. I uh, went for um, my postdoc at a therapeutic school in the suburbs of Chicago and their work, they were focused more, they still are on um, high functioning individuals on the autism spectrum Hmm, okay Okay. and so that was the 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 majority of the population of students there but then they also have several other schools as well so once I finished my postdoc year I was offered a position at one of their other schools where it was kind of a split position and um, I hadn't really done any testing work since my forensic uh, diagnostic year which is a very different kind of testing. I was going to say, so so can you explain to people that may maybe not know the setting or like, because, um, you know, testing does occur in a lot of different settings, but what was it like specific to that, uh, forensic, um, you know, site that you were at that state hospital? So I, the state hospital that I was at, they have what they call the criminal side and the civil side. And, okay. um, Okay. So I was on the criminal side in a kind of medium security unit of women, and they'd all been there because of some kind of criminal offense and charge that they'd been found um, NGRI or not guilty by reason of insanity. Wow. And, okay. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. Please go on. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so they were there just um, f- uh, kind of fulfilling their uh you know, their, their term of their sentence. Um, some of them were there for like more minor offenses. Um, and it, I mean, it really gives you some, it really opened my eyes to what the prison sl- system slash mental health, you know, deficit that there mm-hmm. is with support, supportive services for people mm-hmm. who are committing different types of crimes. Um, and that's, so that's where I was at and what they have you do there 
people just kind of come up for their, their time period where they need to be reassessed or assessed uh, and get some kind of psychological assessment. And with that, I would be doing just, you know, a lot of your typical battery or protocol of testing of, you know, cognitive testing and then okay. a lot of psychological testing, um, projective measures, objective measures and questionnaires, um, clinical interview, and then um, writing up your report. And um, it would always have to be a report. Obviously, you know, I work on it with my supervisor's um, guidance, but it would have to be a report that we would have to, in our minds, be, you know, have ready to go to court if somebody had to talk about it in court for whatever reason. Um, and that would just be kind of part of their file and sometimes would be used as, you know, maybe information in supporting them, you know, in whatever their sentence was, if they were going to be, you know, released into the community, you know, if they were nearing what they call, they call it a theme date, where it's kind of the end of their term or their sentence, and where they kind of put them out into the, you know, let them out into the community, either with like family or some kind of, you know, housing situation, but... That's amazing. I mean, I feel like, don't you think, Jen, because it's like it, the words do carry so much weight right. <laughs> and especially in that setting of, you know, are you, are you in, or are you out, you know, or, or what, what is going to be the protocol that you go forth um, with your treatment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and that, and, and it's kind of fascinating that you were on kind of two different spectrums yeah. in the field for, you know, working with children and adolescents or working with the forensic population but there's still some, I mean, there, there's definitely a lot of those tools that you use in your testing mm-hmm. carry over in both settings. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. And it's, I mean, it's interesting. And I, I train a lot of grad students now. And um, when we're working with, and we usually get them in their first clinical training year. So they're very like green and fresh and everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. I kind of explain to them, you're going to, you know, every site has their own way of writing a report. You know, the way that I learn to write reports is very, very different than the way that mm-hmm. I'm training my students now to write it. Um, and it's, it's a learning process with, with every setting that you go to. So it's really interesting. Absolutely. Can you tell us, Christina, a little bit about what you do, right? Like what you do now, what your current role is. So, um, once I moved on from my postdoc year um, and kind of became an employee with the organization that I'm still at, um, I kind of have this, this flip position, I guess. And it, it's give, it gives me a lot of variety, which I love. Um, so I split part of my time. So they also have a private practice or a group practice. And so I split my time between doing therapy with kids, adolescents, families, and some adults. I also do a lot of neuropsych testing in that setting. And then on the school side of things, I am in a th- one of our therapeutic day schools and I supervise the graduate students that are coming in to do their diagnostic training year. And um, they work with the students within our school doing testing with them. And so I do all that training. And then I also do some of the testing as well. So I have my fingers in a lot of pies, I guess. Mm-hmm. So be- before we get into, you know, like exactly what you're doing, could you just explain just for maybe the audience who's not aware of what um, a therapeutic day, like, I think people would know what, what 
group therapy would be like, or, or like, you know, going to individual therapy. I mean, if they, if they haven't, they can listen to episodes like one through whatever we've been on. Time, right? like, we talk a lot about what is therapy, right? But, but what, like, what is, how would you describe um, therapeutic day? Because I know we've all worked there. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever someone's asked me a question about, you know, past training or something, it's always very, um, eye-opening for them when I describe what therapeutic day is. So how would you describe it, um, you know, just to the, you know, to the person who doesn't know and, and then how kids would get to therapeutic day, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, so the way I describe it is it's, it's a day school setting. They don't live at the school, you know, they go home every day. It's a, it's a regular school setting in that sense. It's much smaller. The classrooms are typically only 10 students. Um, per classroom and then they have a teacher and like an aide or a program assistant within the classroom so the ratio is pretty small as far Mm -hmm. as teacher to student Um, and students are usually coming to a therapeutic day school because there's been some kind of precipitating events that have occurred that have uh, led them to get a referral so and they can come through a couple of ways they can be you know, currently already special edu- a special education student and have been found eligible under one of the many special education eligibility labels. And um, they just kind of come to our school because it's, it's a good setting for them and it's kind of where they need to be to work on their emotional well-being and their academics. And then the kind of the part that I'm more involved in is the diagnostic placement piece where there, that's more where there's been some kind of event that's gone on and students are not necessarily already special education eligible or, or kind of, you know, have that designation. A lot of times they're just regular education students. And, um, and for what I mean by event, there's, you know, they sometimes students have had, you know, a lot of emotional difficulties and maybe they've had some hospitalizations or they've had some behavioral issues in the school um, where they're not attending classes or they've gotten, there's been a lot of aggression or they're leaving the school or they're just some kind of events that go on where the, the home school, as we call it, kind of says, you know, there's, there's something going on here. We think there's something going on. We're not sure uh, this, we're not able to provide the support or the resources that the student needs in order to provide them the best education in our setting. So they have them come to our school where they get, group therapy, individual therapy, a number of different evaluations or assessments, depending on what the kind of questions or concerning issues are or presenting issues. Mm -hmm. And then that's kind of where I come in and we do a a case study evaluation. And how long, like, does it take the evaluation, like from start to finish, like once a student comes in and you're like, let's figure out what's happening. Um, Is it like daily testing? Is it weekly? Is it do you have a certain number of days that you have to get this done by? Like, I'm just thinking like, you know, because, you know, testing does take a lot of time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So the diagnostic placement is typically 60 school days, um, which translates to about three and a half months overall. Um, Sometimes it's a 45 day placement, but that's, um, that's usually, there's not necessarily testing that's going to go going to happen during that time period it might be more there's some situation that's gone on where the student has to be outplaced because they've like violated some school rule or something like that that they they can't be at their home school for a certain period of time Um, so the 60-day placement is more typical but what we see 
And um, so during that time, the student is, you know, meeting with different, you know, the different professionals and, and clinicians that are working with them to do the testing. So the testing in the school setting is a little different compared to when you might do it in a private practice setting or even a hospital setting where, you know, that might happen all within one day or two mm-hmm. days. Whereas at the school setting, we kind of have that luxury of, you know, spreading it out if we need to, taking more time to do it. Um, we don't have to kind of knock it all out in one day. So we have, you know, it's really nice because you get a really long time period to observe the kid and work with them mm-hmm. and meet with them and do all the different components um, that are kind of requested um, as part of the, the domain areas. And then with kind of the diagnostic placement that you have, what it like in the end, what's the goal for that patient? Or that per that student. <laughs> yeah. So um, once everyone that's worked with the student and that's, you know, it could be they'd be getting a, an occupational therapy evaluation, a speech and language evaluation, mm-hmm. um, vision and hearing and kind of like re- relevant, you know, health background, a psychiatric evaluation, the therapist is doing their own kind of social developmental history and therapeutic summary of working with the kid. And then there's the diagnostic component from the testing, from our testing piece, which is the, you know, cognitive assessment, maybe academic testing, the social, emotional, and personality functioning. So although once everyone kind of has all their pieces together, we, um, the the, the team that's been working with the student meets, and there is also involving the parents. And sometimes depending on the age of the student, the student will be involved in the meeting as well. And Mm -hmm. Everyone, and then there's uh, representatives from the school district or the school themselves to kind of talk about, okay, what, what are the results of, what are the findings from all this testing? Are there things mm-hmm. that we're seeing that point to a particular diagnosis or an area of eligibility that we want to explore? So there's different special education um, eligibility designations and um, the ones that kind of we see the most often in the therapeutic day school setting are with uh, emotional disability or ED. Um, And that's usually when there's some kind of emotional uh, struggles going on. And all the wording in it is, um, I don't know if it's written by psychologists. (laughs) It doesn't feel like it, does it? (laughs) So sometimes like the, feels terrible. Like those like, are questions that they, that we kind of have to go through to, to kind of check off the list of, you know, we, we sometimes have to kind of step back and say, okay, what does, what does this mean from what we're observing or seeing from the mm-hmm. student rather than just kind of going through it. But um, so there's this emotional, you know, if there's like some kind of emotional difficulties that are going on that are preventing the student from kind of accessing their education is essentially the way it's kind of described and then the other one that's used a lot or you know, often is OHI or other health impairment. And that's typically okay. encompassing when a student has a diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. Um, and someone can have more than one designation. You could have OHI and ED. There's also a specific learning um, disability or disorder, which falls under when there's some discrepancy between their academic achievement and uh, kind of where we would expect them to be given their grade level and their, their kind of cognitive ability, or is there some kind of learning disability that needs to be addressed? That, that could also be designation. 
can you can you describe for us um, what would be the difference between an IEP and a 504 plan? Um, that's something that has come up before as a question people have asked. Um, if I recall, mm-hmm. IEP is individualized education plan. Did I get it right? I don't know. <laughs> um, so <laughs> do you, do you, can you describe that? And then also does that play a role like as a designation in your work? Um, is it something that you use uh, those uh, classifications? Yes, those, those are always part of the discussion. So um, if a student is meeting one of those criteria labels for special education, then what happens is they will, will the school individuals or you know staff that are going to be working with the student, um, we draw an IEP plan or an individual education plan or program, and that has different goals for the student. So whether it's you know related, it could be something related to emotional regulation and them being able to use appropriate coping skills when they're feeling overwhelmed or struggling with you know something that is. Um, causing a lot of distress for them and they're in the school setting what can you know what can they do to kind of help that and so there's different goals or it could be educate um, academic goals related to math or English or writing or something like that Um, and so that's that's what would be occurring within an IEP there's always some kind of goals that are going to be worked on and met with the different people that work with the student and then a 504 plan is more um, the way I kind of explain it is it's more accommodation. So the, okay. the individual isn't necessarily meeting criteria for um, special education or, um, you know, it, we'll see this often with kids that have a, a diagnosis of ADHD, let's say. Um, they may have, you know, ADHD. They may be taking medication for it. They may not be. They may be working with a therapist, you know, at school or not. Um, but, you know, whatever they're seeing or whatever we're seeing is it's not impacting their education so much that um, they need to have goals written. So it's more looking at, uh, okay, this, you know, this diagnosis impacts them to the point where it's helpful to have some accommodations for them when they're at school. So it's things like extended time on tests or other work. It's getting, you know, being able to take their tests in a different setting. If, being in a classroom with like 30 other kids is too overwhelming for them and distracting. Um, it's, you know, even things like you know, having a fidget or being able to take different, you know, mm-hmm. different breaks throughout mm-hmm. the day. So it's, it's always different, some kind of accommodation that's being made, but they don't have that um, special education designation to them. Okay. That's, that's a helpful explanation because I think you oftentimes will hear both 504 plans and IEPs related to school and it, it's, it can be very confusing sometimes. Mm-hmm. So that was a, that was a good explanation. Um, and I know you had mentioned that you also do some neuropsych testing in your, um, in kind of like the, the private practice, group practice side, as well as in the school side. Um, and a few episodes back, we did talk with somebody about their experience with neuropsych testing, but what would you say like people should expect or not expect in a testing session? Um, I think, um, I'm trying to think if it's a little bit different between, you know, when I'm meeting with someone in the school versus in the practice. Um, I, I think um, as far as what they would expect, 
Um, Like, do you Usually. give a, a primer? Sorry, do you give a primer like, hey, kid, we're going to be doing some testing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I tried to, and I remember back in the day, I would try to do that. And it was always, and it always went over their head. They're like, we don't even want to see you. <laughs> so, <Yeah. okay. laughs> I, I was yeah. not very engaging, I guess, but I'm sure you're much better than I am. Yeah. I think the way, um, so like if I'm meeting with a, a kid from the school, um, I, I've already, you know, I'll start out by introducing myself and kind of just making my presence known so they kind of see who I am. And then I, I just let them know that I'm going to be meeting with them and we're going to be doing some things to get ready for their meeting that's in a few months. So all the students know that okay. they're there to like meet with a bunch of different people. And at the end of everything, they're going to have a meeting and they're going to talk about everything. And then it's going to be decided, okay, where should you go to school to get your, your these supportive services if you need them? So they're usually kind of prepped a little bit for what, you know, who you're going to, who they're going to meet with. And then I try not to like explain too much about what we're doing. I might just kind of give a general explanation and, and I'll do this in the practice as well because you say cognitive testing and that's kind of like, what, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. Um, So the way I explain it to people is just, you know, we're going to do some things together where it's going to give me an idea of how you learn. Are you a more visual person? Are you a more verbal person? There's no right or wrong. It's just kind of how, how you think through things and how you solve problems. And the things that we're going to do is going to help me understand how you learn and how you figure out problems. And then that'll help us you know, figure out a little bit better, you know, if you need any extra help anywhere, or, you know, what are the things that are that you're you have strengths in? Or what are the things that you need a little extra help in? And how do we how do we provide that extra help? So that's the way I kind of describe it to them. And then with the academic pieces, I I, I just kind of, I'm very, I, I guess I use a lot of humor in my work with kids. I think you kind of have to when you're working. You have to. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Or they'll just, you know, they just, if you're weak at all, they'll just, target you and they just know it oh yeah so I'll just explain you know some things that we're going to do are going to feel a lot like schoolwork. um we'll be you know doing some math kinds of things some writing kinds of things so they kind of know that I'm going to be requesting them to do some things that maybe they don't enjoy very much but um that there's kind of this end goal or this end point that we're we're getting to and there's a reason for it this is totally off topic, but you know, given all the things that you were saying, you know, but it's on topic. Okay. John, I promise. Okay, sorry. Hear me out. Okay. So, so given everything you're saying, you know, figuring out strengths and weaknesses, figuring out how you learn, how do you, how you problem solve. I would love somebody to test me. Like, why didn't I get tested earlier? You know? I know. But so here's my question then, how difficult is it? Do you think just in your experience to get uh, from like, let's say you're a child that has uh, needs, has special education needs, um, and then getting to the point where they're in the placement, because I, I can't imagine that it's an easy route for parents. You know, right. I can't imagine that this is like, you know, w- we know what to do, right? Because I certainly never knew any of these things until I was in graduate school and in a specific program where we did this all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just, I, my question is, you know, is it difficult to get into a placement um, for a therapeutic day and then, and, you know, get all this amazing you know, neurological information that's so vital to figuring out how your mind works. I wish everybody would do this, but how difficult do you think that is? Um, I think, uh, I don't want to say 
therapeutic placement or diagnostic placement is kind of like the, the last resort. Um, but there's, there's, there's usually a lot of other things that have been going on okay. that have given the school concern. Um, and sometimes, um, sometimes it's a difficult um, message to, for families to hear that this is, this is the place where their, mm-hmm. their child needs to be to help figure out how to support them and help them. Um, and some parents or families are very, very kind of thankful and grateful that we're at this point where there's a referral happening where they, you know, their, their child can get the support that they need. Um, it has to be a placement that uh, the, re- the referral needs to be made by the homeschool district. It's not something that the parents can call the school and say, hey, I want to send my kid here. Do you guys right. have openings? Um, it's right. all through directed through the school district and they provide, you know, they, they provide the funding for educating the student and, you know, essentially pay for whatever testing they pay for transportation to and from the school. So um, if, if a student, you know, it, it, I think it can be a very, uh, you know, complicated, there's probably a lot of complicated feelings that go on for families during this time, because to get to that point where you know, or, or you're hearing that your child needs this level of support or an evaluation that um, of this nature can be, you know, difficult. And mm-hmm. especially now the last couple of years where some kids really haven't been in school in a normal school setting for a long time. Um, we're, we're definitely getting a lot more referrals because the, the homeschools, the, the school districts don't, they don't really know the students, so they don't right. really know what right. kind of typical behavior from them and what's kind of, you know, not, not, you know, typical. And so there's a lot of, which I think is good. You know, the schools are, are wanting to provide whatever support is needed for kids. And, you know, I think this has been a difficult time for a lot of young people with COVID and all the restrictions and things mm-hmm. that have been going on. Um, but uh, it's, it's probably, it, it, it takes a while to get to this point. Okay. Okay. It, it just sounds like it's such a process and it sounds like the end goal is always to inform and educate, you know, then just mm-hmm. the, the parents, but also the school and then the child. I wish everybody would get tested. You know, right. just why, you know, why, why, Chen, I mean, I know it's totally I, ethical, but could you test right. me, you know, maybe. Well, and, and I feel like, I mean, I just feel like when you were talking about like what the diagnostic placement look like and what the like the treatment team for lack of a better word like what mm-hmm. they who who they encompassed during that time and I thought like this is like at the end you're getting such a good picture of like how the student learns like what how they will function best like what environment what support they need in order to like be their best self in school and I was like I feel like everybody could benefit from that just knowing kind of I mean you I feel like through the years, you figure out how you, how you learn better. But I don't feel like I learned until I was an adult, like, oh, I learned better this way. Totally. <laughs> all of school, just like being able to, to function. But I thought like, I probably could have gotten so much more if I realized in like high school that I am a better like visual learner versus just listening to somebody talk to me. And you require a bracelet in your hand. I think that always helps you. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, I, I know you, you require something like, and it would be now the form of it would be a fidget thing, a, a fidget, fidget spinner. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. Back then it was my pen. 
or, or the bracelet that fell apart. That I, had. Yeah. <laughs> I had like I remember one time in a session I was like fidgeting with my ring and it like rolled across and I was like oh I can't get up and get it like at this point I just have to ignore it did they notice did they notice um I don't feel like they did because they were so like in, they were like so wrapped up in their story but it did it, it, it like fell and it rolled and it rolled under the couch and I like that took my <laughs> attention the rest of the time so I'm just wondering if you probably would have benefited from a fidget <laughs> I think that would have been good for you <laughs> um <so> speaking <laughs> you were talking a little bit about the struggles of of children that you're seeing especially in COVID I can't even imagine in therapeutic day like no. the pivot from in person <laughs> just to I, did you guys do um like zoom how did that work for te- for for therapeutic i'm just curious yeah um, <laughs> um <laughs> <a> big sigh <laughs> right. it's just not a time i want to revisit no uh yeah well, i mean it was right? sure there's you know from the the school side of um so obviously we went remote just like everybody else did mm-hmm. you know in march of 2020 mm-hmm. and everybody thought it was only going to be a couple of weeks and all that stuff uh-huh. oh, yeah. <laughs> and then we quickly realized okay this is not um this is this is going to take a lot longer and so they developed you know our our school staff are really great they kind of quickly banded together and figured out a protocol for okay how do we have remote learning with this population and having mm-hmm. them log in and zoom in and um i think you know part of the there was um I don't remember what I was listening to back at the time, but I was having a conversation with someone about just the kind of the losses and like the the social, emotional and educational losses that are going on, um, you know, from having to do all the remote learning and, you know, kids being present or not being present and Mm -hmm. how much it's, and and that it's affecting special education students, you know, like triple times. Mm -hmm. So their, their educational loss or, social emotional learning loss was, was much greater than students mm-hmm. in the regular education setting. Um, and we would have students who were logging in and attending, and then we would have some students where we, we didn't hear from them for months. They, they, you know, we would be reaching out to them and trying to get them to log on and contacting families. And I mean, this is just a very difficult time for so many people. And, you know, for some kids where, um, there, you know, maybe some of the, the, the family dynamics that were going on or the stresses at home, um, making sure that they were logging on or some of them, you know, we had to get Chromebooks out to all the kids because they didn't necessarily have them to bring home all the time when they were mm-hmm. at the school. So just kind of navigating through all of that was such a process. Um, but then some, some kids, we just didn't, did, weren't able to kind of get them to engage. And that was really challenging. And then the testing part of it was really interesting because you know, I still had students who needed to have their testing completed by a certain date in order to have their meeting. And so my reports had a lot of caveats in there about, you know, we're doing testing during remote learning. Um, there's a lot of things that I couldn't do. So I did a lot of the, anything that was like verbal or where they just had to give me a verbal answer. Or we would talk about something I was able to do, but anything that had a visual component or writing or something like that, that was just very difficult to do virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some tests, you know, a lot of the testing, uh, uh, like um, service 
services, you know, who provides the assessments, they created a lot of remote options for people, but, wow. um, and then not knowing how long this was going to go on and if we were going to be back in person again, mm-hmm. um, you know, we adopted some things, but not others. And then um, what I ended up doing, I was, you know, I was remote doing all my, you know, my work in the school and my work in the practice, just like everybody else for quite a while. But then I think in May of 2020, I actually just started going back in the office and meeting with people to do testing. But that's, you know, also different because you're masked. And so it's, I have this joke where I say, oh, I can't hear you. I'm, I'm wearing a mask or something (laughs) because you can't, I feel like there's such a, 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 there's such a loss of understanding that can happen when you can't see what someone's saying. Mm -hmm. I I guess I never realized how much I, I don't think I lip read, but I definitely watch what people are saying when they say things. So having that. You lose, you lose like half of their facial expression too. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize how, like, I didn't realize how much of an impact not seeing somebody's full face would have. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely has an impact. And I do um, autism evaluations also. Oh, and, okay. okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that, you know, the protocol right now is when you're meeting with people, we're in a healthcare setting or in a school setting, you're wearing your mask. Well, mm-hmm. for those evaluations, in order for them to really be considered valid, you shouldn't you know, you should be able to see the, each other's faces because right. the, that testing is all about social reciprocity and interactions mm-hmm. and, um, you know, how, how those, how the person responds to different, um, you know, prompts and things that you're doing with them and to not have that facial expression piece is, is huge. So I usually uh, just get, you know, permission from the parents to re- remove our masks and um, so that we're able to do a true valid assessment that way. That's unbelievable. I didn't, all the things I didn't think about, you know, all the, no, again, right. special ed and, and testing. And then, yes, I did, I did not think about it because I haven't done testing in years. So it's out of sight, <laughs> out of mind. You know what I mean? So unbelievable. So now that, I mean, cause I feel like, I feel like this past, the past two years are like through this pandemic, I feel like we've gone through like these like seasons or shifts in the stressors. Like initially there was a lot of there was such high anxiety about what is happening, what's going to happen, you know, schools and place, everything going remote and kind of having that lockdown and then things start opening up. And now that I feel like we've been in this for almost fully two years now, what um, struggles and stressors have you seen that have changed kind of this past year and kind of where are the students and the individuals that you're working with? What are some of the, the stressors that you see as a result of what's been happening? Um, I, I think for, and I'm kind of just thinking about like the, the therapeutic day school setting, Mm -hmm. um, the things that, you know, some kids in our, in the school struggle to come to school anyway, and then having, um, the remote for so long, um, really got them out of the routine of being, in school and so kind of getting over that hump of getting that back into the building has been challenging but and then I think the other thing that comes up is when when anyone is has a close contact or there's someone has a cough or a sniffle Mm -hmm. or you know anything that kind of ticks on that list (laughs) of possible COVID symptoms 
they, you know, they have to get tested or they have to go home, they have to quarantine for several days. And then you kind of feel like you're getting back over that hump of making, you know, having them, getting them back into the building. Um, And I, you know, I think for, for, for kids or people in general, I think, you know, having some kind of routine and structure is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm all for, you know, having downtime and having that like nothing time where you don't have something scheduled or you don't have something that you have to do. But I think having kind of a regular expectation of yourself of, okay, these are the days that I go to school and this is, these are the things that I do. And this is, this is important. This is an obligation or a responsibility that I have to to myself um, is important. And when kids, when people kind of fall out of that routine, it's, it's hard to kind of get back into it. So that's definitely been something that's come up. And um, one of the things that we see, and you guys, you probably felt like you saw this too with kids at uh, Bridgeview, mm-hmm. where, you know, when we would head into breaks, there'd be kind of that like tension and like just kind of a vibe that mm-hmm. is going on in the school where, where you know, you sometimes the holidays are not happy for kids, mm-hmm. right? They, they don't have a, a family system that's really healthy or communicative. And so being home for two weeks or several weeks, you know, in the summer is actually very stressful for them and not, you know, a comforting and loving and nurturing environment. So, you know, I, I always feel like getting in, you know, heading into a break, we're kind of preparing for some of that, some of those kind of feelings and behaviors that are, you know, coming off of, you know, coming off of some of the kids mm-hmm. and they're not necessarily verbalizing it. So I think, verbalizing it to them and acknowledging that, you know, it's okay to not be really happy about Christmas or the holidays um, because there's this pressure that you're supposed to be all excited about being home and not everybody is, it's, it's, you know, in some families um, we would usually have like a Thanksgiving meal that we would host for um, all the kids and and whatever family members that they want to have attend and, you know, for some families, that's their Thanksgiving meal. They wow. don't have like a, like a family gathering of, of, you know, the meal and, and the turkey and all that time. So um, I think during COVID and knowing what, you know, we didn't have, I think we did it this year, but we didn't obviously do it last year. And just, you know, having some of those supportive loss, losses of those supports that, you know, we had as part of our school for families was, was you know, it was difficult for mm-hmm. our staff to not be, you know, know that some families were struggling or some kids were struggling, but there are certain things that like, we can't do the same way that we used to do anymore. I think that's so interesting that yeah. you say that because you're right. I think that for a lot of people in general, the holidays aren't a happy time. They are reminiscent of, you know, maybe trauma or abuse or uh, food scarcity, like you're talking about mm-hmm. with, you know, the families that, that can't have that those meals, you know, um, and so, and it's really difficult um, because there is an expectation that we, you know, have to manage it all and have to do all this stuff. What would you say to let, let's say like a parent who's maybe um, on the receiving end or just, you know, struggling with their kids at home that are experiencing this, you know, or experiencing uh, an increased sadness or anxiety about being home during this winter break? What are like some stress management tips you would give to a parent that might be helpful. I um, mean, you know, and it's a pretty broad question, so I apologize for that. But mm-hmm. anything that would be helpful um, for parents that may be listening. Um, I think, you know, some of the the like typical things that you would think of as part of having a routine. You know, making sure that 
you know, the kids are getting enough sleep and maybe getting some activity and moving around. Um, I'm a big fan of just doing some deep breathing. Um, I think, you know, awareness is, is, you know, the, the first step really, whether it's the self-awareness of the, the, the child or the young person where they kind of can tell that they're not feeling great or something's going on and um, just, you know, whether it's behaviors they're, they're engaging in and then awareness of the parent that if they're observing anything in their child, you know, is there, you know, what are the things to kind of look out for? Or is they, are they avoiding, is their kid avoiding people or isolating? Are they kind of irritable and cranky? Um, are there any other behaviors that are more concerning? Um, are they, you know, engaging in any substance use or, you know, something more, you know, self-harming types of behaviors? And then even, are they, you know, are, are they spending so much time on social media? You know, that can right. be, that could be a whole mm-hmm. other podcast. Okay. <laughs> Maybe can. it will be. <laughs> 2022. Yeah. And kind of, you know, what, what kind of coping, what kind of things is their child doing to kind of, um, you know, are, are the things that they're doing providing short-term relief, but are, you know, are there going to be kind of more long-term, you know, struggles or issues later? Um so, yeah, I think, you know, vegging out and, you know, binge watching some shows or like going on social media. But once you get into that, like, you know, hours and hours or what do they call it? Like mm-hmm. the death scrolling where they're just like, there, it's just this mindless Instagram scrolling and things yep, like yes. that or where it's starting to like really infiltrate their, you know, perception of themselves and like what's normal and what they're supposed to do or what they're supposed to look like. And so I think that reality checking of, you know, what's, what's typical and what's, you know, what's the, like the intensity and then severity of whatever behaviors are going on or whatever they're seeing. Is it, you know, is it, you know, infrequent? Is it just kind of like, oh, they had a bad day and they're going to do an argument with you? Or is it, okay, we've had this whole break has been really difficult and challenging and we're fighting every day or they're in their room or, you know, so what's the intensity and severity of the things that you're seeing? So that awareness um, and then the things that, you know, like I said, I think having some physical activity and, you know, being social in person is important Mm -hmm. um, when they can be. And um, even just, you know, doing simple things, I think during COVID, like our lives got very small in the sense of, we're still in COVID, I guess, but, you know, during a lot of the lockdown, (laughs) you know, our lives got very small where we didn't really have a lot you know, going on. And so it was, mm-hmm. you know, the conversations are about, oh, where did you walk in the neighborhood today? Right. Um, <laughs> what store did you pick things up from today? What are you having for dinner? I mean, like our conversations were pretty, you know, narrow as far as the the, the scope of subjects. Um, so just kind of finding, you know, in, enjoyment in some of the small things again, you know, like that of like going that. out and running some errands, um, making dinner together, um, just having some of that connection time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big believer in having conversations with your kids when you're in the car because right. they're kind of a captive audience as long as they don't have a earbuds in or something like that. And, you know, and that's a lot of times when kids will talk to you and open up or at bedtime. 
Oh my gosh. I'm trying to figure out if that's a strategy for staying up. Oh my gosh. That now I am the captive. I'm captive, literally. Like captive. I cannot move because someone's talking their ear off. And I don't want to move because that's the only time they'll talk to me is right before mm-hmm. they go to sleep, right? It's like yeah. I gotta spill all this, take this all off my chest. And I'm like, all right, I'm really tired though. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Well, if you yeah. have those little, those little like times where they're actually willing to share things with you or, or talk with you or um, kind of let you in, like those little nuggets of information that you hear. If, if as a parent you're listening and kind of hearing, like maybe what's behind whatever they're saying, because totally. they're just talking about like some something that maybe to them seems you know minor or nonsense or oh listen to this, but sometimes as a parent you can kind of listen for that okay what else is maybe going on that they're trying to tell me about or what am I hearing so yeah absolutely well and I think that's I think it's very helpful especially now I mean I feel just in general stress stress levels have been extremely high and it seems like things they we tend to kind of go in like things settle down a little bit and then things get right back Mm -hmm. up there with high stress levels so it's always great to have some some stress management tips to share because we could always we could always use that. Everybody could always benefit from from here either either rehearing things or learning some new strategies as well. Um, and hearing you kind of talk about your role and what you do really conveys how much you enjoy what you do. But what would you say you like most about your work? Um, I I mean. There's a, there's a lot of things that I like. Um, I I love the variety that I get to have. I I love being able to work with kind of you know the, the young psychologists and kind of train them in the work that we do to kind of put them out into the world. I you know with clients or people you know kids or families that I'm working with. Um, I from the from the testing piece, I love that there's kind of a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that we're mm-hmm. providing some answers or some, um, you know, clarity to questions that they have, whether it's, yep, that's what we thought was happening. Thank you for confirming it. Or sometimes it's more difficult conversations where uh, I'm kind of walking them through, you know, different phases of information that they weren't ready, you know, necessarily thinking they were going to hear about. But kind of being that person to guide them through it and and help explain it without, you know, a lot of jargon or or all these weird terms that they don't, that don't kind of Mm -hmm. connect for them. Uh, And then with, you know, therapy, I just, you know, I'm I'm a big narrative person and how I, I think of how everybody's life is a story. And are we, you know, pulling things into our story that kind of confirm how we, you know, what we're learning about ourselves and what we're feeling about ourselves. And I like trying to help people pull in, you know, all the information rather than just, you know, sometimes we have a tendency to just hone in on the the negative things that reinforce what we're thinking about ourselves. And so having that outside perspective of a person helping, helping them kind of pull in all the pieces of their, you know, their life, I guess, of their narrative to help them understand who they are and kind of grow into the adult that they're going to become. And that's so helpful. I think that's so helpful to yeah. know things about your, just to know yourself um, and just to walk into a room and say, I know this about myself. I know this makes me anxious or I know this makes me depressed mm-hmm. or sad or something. I think is such a valuable, it's just valuable information. Um, one of the things that 
Jen and I like to ask all our guest experts is if there's something that you think is misunderstood or like some myth in, in, in the field of psychology, or if it comes to therapy or working, you know, in, in this field in any way, is there anything that you, you know, that, that you feel is very misunderstood about therapy or, or maybe something you, you even are asked frequently. Like I'm always asked, like, are you analyzing me? And the answer is always no. <laughs> I am doing groceries in my head sometimes when I'm talking to friends. You know what I'm just kidding. You <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm, I know I'm trying to multitask my life. Um, so is there anything that you feel is like a big myth or something misunderstood that you wish you could demystify with us today? I think, um, I think things have are, are progressing in a, in a good direction, but I think there's sometimes this misconception or this um, assumption that like if you go to therapy or if you know there's you have like mental health struggles that like you're you're crazy or mm-hmm. what's wrong with you kind of thing, and um, I think that psychological health doesn't necessarily mean feeling good or that everything is fine. It's, it's kind of really being able to like have the, 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 the right feelings at the right time or the appropriate feelings at the appropriate time. And just kind of knowing that if you're like having difficulty and having different feelings as part of being human and being able to work through that adversity is a sign of resilience. And mm-hmm. um, it, it's like, we all need to be able to learn how to tolerate uncertainty and like when things are you know not not predictable and when when people are going to therapy it's because there's there's things for them that they feel are overwhelming or out of control and that that doesn't mean that they're you know quote crazy or right. that like there's something wrong right. with them yeah there's yeah. something really right with them is what right. I think you yeah know? Like, good <laughs> figured it this out go, go, talk to somebody about it you know so well absolutely and I feel like this these past two years they're there was such uncertainty. And I feel like for a lot of people, it was, they've, they've been functioning their whole life. And like the skills that they have have worked for them. But then this, these past two years, there's been such high uncertainty. And it's like, you, even for myself, there were times where like, I don't, I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to handle like this high level of stress for such a period, a longer period of time. And I think, you know, working with a therapist is a great way to have more self-awareness to have more tools. I, I feel like you could never have too many coping skills and too many tools to manage your stress. And it's not, I feel like there's probably a very small percentage that of people who seek therapy when they're in crisis versus people who are in therapy to just kind of have more of that self-awareness and more of that understanding and, mm-hmm. and more of the ways to learn how to cope. Agreed. I totally yeah. agreed. And just having that, you know, I, I, I can't count how many times I had conversations with people where I just kind of acknowledged that what was going on was, you know, I would say like, yeah, this is a very weird time. This is not mm-hmm. normal. This is not typical. <laughs> Whatever you're feeling is, is okay. Cause th- nobody knows what to do. Nobody, no, nobody's gone through this in what a hundred years since the last pandemic right. and the world looked very different then. So I think that acknowledgement that having feelings about it or, or being uncomfortable or confused or, or worried or scared or angry is all valid. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's more than just, oh, you know, just 
it's it'll be fine just you know we still got to do this you still got to do that i mean yeah we all still had to function but it's you can also have all these other feelings about it and um it's okay absolutely so another question that we do like to ask all of our our guests um is what is something that you wish people knew about the field about your work and even something kind of that working with some of the new um the graduate students that you have and those who are new to the field what is something that you wished either you were told when you were first starting out or you've learned along the way that you would like to impart that wisdom on all of us hmm. <laughs> um i uh this is kind of like, I guess, a life lesson too, but um, <laughs> just that like making mistakes is, is okay. Um, so I just thinking about, you know, training grad students and working with them and they're usually just very, I think a lot of people deal with that kind of imposter syndrome when they're mm -hmm. in training or even, you know, early career psychologists and, uh, you know, acknowledging that there's that discomfort, but if there wasn't discomfort, then you're not growing or learning mm -hmm. anything. Um, so just, just knowing that it's okay to ask a question that you think, you know, is, is dumb, or if you make a mistake or, uh, you know, that, and I think also something that I think of when I think of therapy is more, um, you know, the, the one hour a week that I'm meeting with someone is really more of like laying the foundation of the work that needs to be done outside of the, the office, outside of the therapy setting. Um, you know, there's only so much impact that we can have within that time with them when we see them. It's really more, okay, these are all the things that we've talked about, like go, <laughs> go forth into the world, and, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and, and, and practice it and try it. And yeah. I think sometimes, um, there's that struggle of transitioning it from all the, the great discussion and conversation and, and practice that we do in session and then how to put it into practice when they're out in the real world with their friends and their family and their spouses and their friends. And um, it can be, you know, challenging because, you know, if they're, if the, if the individual, the person is feeling like they're trying to change or they're trying to work on something, but then they're in the system that's, you know, kind of trying to maintain the homeostasis of what's already mm -hmm. there, like that can be really challenging. So I think kind of understanding that the work ha happens outside of the session and, and we are kind of like the laying the foundation. I like that. I like that. It's kind of like the blueprint for what you're going to do next, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Christina, for joining us today. It has been great kind of catching up and hearing yes, about yeah. you and, and your role and the difference that you're making. Um, if somebody has questions, because oftentimes people will reach, may reach out to us um, or as they're listening, may develop questions. Is there, what's the best way for somebody to reach you if they have some questions? They can probably email me. Um at uh do you want me to just provide my email or sure, sure. yeah if you feel comfortable so, yeah yeah it's uh christina c-h-r-i-s-t-i-n-a dot bailey b as in boy a-i-l-e-y 
and then the number is 828 at gmail.com. So Bailey 828 at gmail.com. Probably the, the straightest, quickest route to <laughs> get in touch with me. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time yeah. and, you know, and all your gems <laughs> yeah. and knowledge that you dropped with us today. Um, we will be posting this soon and have a great holiday. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Absolutely. It was great catching up with you girls. Right. Yes. Thank you. We like girls because it just means we're young. Remember, we right. met yesterday, about <laughs> a decade ago. So we prefer that. <laughs> well, thank you so much and have a great holiday. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. Bye. 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 You are listening to the Everything You Want to Know About Therapy, but We're Too Afraid to Ask podcast with your hosts, Jennifer Trevelli and co-host Jessica Strang. If you ever wanted to start therapy but didn't know where to begin, you've come to the right place. In this podcast, we will offer a Therapy 101 by interviewing experts in the field and asking them anything and everything you wanted to know about therapy before you make your first appointment.